Good morning. Please take out your copy of God's Word. Please open up and turn in God's Word to John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. Today we're looking again at the text that we only began last week. We'll focus more on verses 30 through 34. If you didn't come with a Bible, we've provided there um, uh, one for you right in front of you. Please grab it and open up and you can find the passage on page 886. Were I a good and efficient preacher, I would have been able to handle this whole passage last time, but it's just too rich. Verse 29 is one of the most important verses in the Bible, containing in it the theme of the Bible, the salvation of sinners by the substitutionary sacrifice of the Son. And so we looked at two points last week. Look at your sin, because verse 29 is the first use of that word, sin, in John. But look at your sin for the purpose of then looking for the solution to that sin, which is the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. So, so look at the Savior. We preach Christ crucified, as we've discussed. We preach Christ crucified because the Bible says that people without Christ go to hell. We preach Christ as Savior because man is sinner. So look at your sin, look at the Savior, look and live. But that then raises a question that we didn't really uh, get to last week. Well, how? How does a sinner look to the Savior? How do we, who are profoundly sinful, look to Him who is perfectly holy? How do we actually benefit from this wonderful work that Christ has done that we looked at last week? And the answer is again in our text, when in verse 32, we get to another important first in the Gospel of John, his first use of the word spirit. Our third point last week was supposed to be look at the spirit. I want to tweak that this week uh, to, I think, get it better. Look, look by the spirit or look through the spirit or look with the spirit. How do we look and live? What's well, through the means of the spirit. The one whom Jesus will tell us in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. Everybody wants life. We know that now, right? You want to live. The last year has demonstrated that everyone is terrified of death. We don't actually believe that death is the most natural thing in the world. We don't actually believe that we are nothing more than matter, nothing, more, nothing but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms destined to extinction. Bertrand Russell. No, we don't actually believe that. That's why we quarantine. That's why we're obsessed with masks. That's why we treat this vaccine as if it is the savior of the world. I want to be clear. Masks are good. Vaccines are good. It is good to preserve life because life is good. But the question remains, what really is life? Right? What is it to live? Is there more to life than just the physical? And if so, what is it? And if so, how do we get it? The Bible's answer is pretty simple. It's the spirit. It's the Spirit who gives life. So we read in Romans chapter 8. Right now, sitting in this room, or sitting at home watching online, you are either alive or dead. And it's quite simple. If you have the Spirit, you are alive. If you do not have the Spirit, then you are dead. Are you alive? Yes or no? Well, how do you know if you have the Spirit? How do you know if you have the Spirit? Good question. This text, which introduces us to the Spirit will help us. Last week was look and live. Behold the lamb who died and lived. And here we see that it is the spirit who in some way makes this happen. Look at the savior. How? Look at the savior through the spirit. 
And so we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit this morning, which is good because there's a lot of confusion concerning the Spirit these days. We have just two points this morning as we look at the text. The main idea is simply it is the Spirit who gives life. I want you to leave your understanding that it is the Spirit who gives life. There is no life apart from the Spirit. So you get life from Him. Point number one, we need to see then that it is the Spirit of life uh, that reveals to you the Christ of life, right? The look at the Lamb, how? The Spirit of life reveals the Christ of life. And then point number two, we'll see that the Christ of life baptizes you with the Spirit of life. What does that mean? Baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's debated these days. What does that mean? Well, let's, let's see from our text. Uh, let me read the text for you. Here's the most important part. John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. This is God's Word, God's living and active and life-giving Word. So pay attention. Because this is what God wants to say to you today. The next day, he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Uh, bow with me and let's begin with, with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, it is the Spirit, your Spirit, who gives life. It is your spirit who reveals uh, to us the son of life through the word of life. And so, Father, we ask now that you would do the very thing that we're looking at this morning through the preaching of your word. Uh, give us eyes to see. Uh, give us ears to hear. Give us a spiritual sense and a spiritual taste so that we may see and savor Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Father, we are entirely dependent upon your spirit. Uh, the Spirit who magnifies and shines the spotlight on Jesus Christ. So we ask that you would show us Christ by the power of your Spirit through the preaching of your Word. Father, help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, the Spirit of life reveals to you the Christ of life. So look at the text. Why am I tackling this whole text in terms of life? You'll notice that that word never shows up in our text. Well, we focused last week on verse 29, where we saw, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Remember the first use of sin there in the book. The sin which we saw, the wages of which is death. Romans 6, 23. Therefore, to take away that sin, that sin which is death, would obviously then mean life. But I hinted last week at another thing that John the author is doing here that, that points us in this direction. We saw all the way back in the beginning in verse 1 that John is intentionally echoing the beginning of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning God created, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Right, so John is writing John 1 with Genesis 1 in the background. The Genesis 1 that presents creation, that presents life in seven days. Well, it seems, I think, that John is not just referencing Genesis at the beginning of this chapter, but here in our section as well. As it seems that John is presenting to us the beginning of the public ministry of Christ in 
seven days, may be indicating to us that here we have the beginning of new creation. This is the beginning of new life. This is the second first week beginning of all things. Look at the text. In verses 19 through 28, we saw this group of religious leaders come and challenge John. That's day one. That's the beginning of the narrative. Eight first, one through 18, all prologue. Narrative begins in 19. There's that story. Our passage begins in verse 29, the next day. So that would be day two. Look down at verse 35. There again, we see the next day. Right? So that would be day three. Remember, way back years ago, we went through Genesis 1. It's broken down into two sets of three days, three, three, followed by the climactic seventh day of rest and blessing. We so get Sabbath wrong. I've been thankful for Henry's uh, teaching. Sabbath, rest, these things are good, they're blessing. Well, here we see maybe that what John is doing is um, kind of structuring the first seven days of Jesus's ministry in these two sets of three, followed by a seventh. And so these first set of three is John's witness, John the witness, the Baptist, his witness to Christ. So then look down at verse 43 now. Again, it says the next day, Jesus. So as after day three, we're now on day four. And the focus is shifting now away from John to Jesus. The next three days would be Jesus with his disciples. John bears witness to Jesus. What are the results of that bearing witness? Disciples come and follow Jesus next three days. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day. What third day? Third day from what? Well, grammatically, the third day from the last events narrated starting back in verse 33. That was day 4. Then on the third day, that means the events of chapter 2, the wedding of Cana, the turning of water into wine, a universal biblical symbol for blessing and abundance, overflowing life. And that happens on the seventh day. On the seventh day, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So that would give us three days of John bearing witness, three days of Jesus with his disciples, and then the climactic seventh day, the beginning of his ministry, the day of blessing, life overflowing. It seems that John, the author, is presenting the first seven days of Jesus's ministry as the beginning of new creation, as the beginning of new life. Is that a stretch? That's what some of you are wondering and thinking. Maybe, probably not. I don't think so, because this is the only time in the whole gospel that John gives us such a careful accounting of days. John doesn't do that anywhere else in the rest of his gospel. So there must be a reason why he's drawing such specific attention to this day, to this day, the next day, three days later. Why is doing that? Why is he doing that? Well, I think it's in light of what we've already seen, the clear background of Genesis chapter one at the beginning of this chapter. I think he's doing the same thing here. He's giving us important hints and subtle indicators of the significance of what is happening here. This is just as big. This is just as significant as creation itself. Because now the creator has come. The one who made the world has entered into the world. And just as the first creation was the beginning of life, this new creation is the beginning of new life. Why did Jesus come? John 10, verse 10, he tells us, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. So the seven day connection to Genesis, the lamb who takes away that sin that is death, tells us that this is all about life. He came for life. But what's the spirit's connection to all this? That's our focus this morning. What about the spirit? 
Well, back to the text. Look at verse 30 now. John the witness says, upon seeing Jesus, after declaring him to be the Lamb of God, he says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. If that sounds familiar, it's because we've already heard this. Look back at verse 15. It's basically the same thing. John, we get verse 15. He says the same thing again in verse 30. Why? Why the repetition in so short a period of time? Well, John the witness was, he's six months older than Jesus. But remember, he's not old. I want to divest us of that notion of this old guy kind of out there. No, he's not old. Um, he was somewhere around 30. He was younger than me, but he was older than Jesus. Plus, his public ministry began before Jesus's ministry. And John is drawing all kinds of attention and all kinds of crowds making a scene. People could have been tempted. And we know that people were tempted to give priority to John and then to focus on John. But John himself is adamant and clear again and again. He says, I am not the point. My point is to point to the one who is. Don't look at me. Look at him. He ranks before me because he was before me. He was before the beginning itself. I am not the Christ, but he is. Right. So John, as witness, is directing all the attention and all the focus to Jesus. That's going to be important for our understanding of the spirit. John's testimony continues. Look at verse 31. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that... He might be revealed to Israel. I think it's a fascinating verse that gets largely overlooked. Remember back in the previous episode, the religious authorities have come questioning John. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? No, 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 no. But look at what they're concerned about in verse 25. Their question was not, hey, why are you preaching? That's not their question. Their question was, why are you baptizing? And that's a good question. Why was John Baptizing. It seems from the context that this wasn't an entirely new thing. They don't ask him, hey, uh, what are you doing? This is weird. You're dunking people in water. What's going on here? Can you explain this new strange thing uh, to us? No, they have some sort of familiarity with some sort of baptism. Baptism was known at that time. We know from other external uh, Jewish sources. There were various sorts of ritual washings. That's going to be an important word. But the most common of these would probably have been what is called proselyte baptism. We don't use that word much anymore. A proselyte is simply a, a convert. And so it was common back then in many groups, Jewish groups, that a baptism was part of the process of a Gentile converting to Judaism. There's no problem there, right? because all the Jews recognize uh, Gentiles are unclean. So they are thus in need of ceremonial cleansing that is then pictured in baptism. We often miss this basic point. We get confused about baptism and what it really means and what's the symbol and what's... What, what, water washes. It's that simple. It's not that complicated. When you are dirty, I hope you get in the water to get clean, right? Water washes away filth. It's, it's pretty simple. Don't forget that. But do you see the problem then that many of the Jews may have had with John's baptism? John is not baptizing Gentiles. He's baptizing Jews. And this would have been a great offense. The Jews were, they're God's special. They're God's chosen people. They don't need to be baptized. They don't need to be washed clean. They're the Jews. Everybody else does. So John seems to be ignoring this special status. He is calling Israel to be baptized. 
in water which washes, which symbolizes cleansing. And so as we saw up in verse 23, John is the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. We read last week in Mark 1, verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. See, that's how John prepares the way for the Lord, by calling the people to turn away from their sin and themselves and then return back to the Lord, all symbolized in the washing of the waters of baptism. That's why John was baptizing. But I think that's almost generally where we stop. That's where most people's explanation of John's baptism stops, even in the commentaries, even in uh, the systematic theologies. But go back to verse 31, because we often miss the specific reason. It tells us ultimately why John was baptizing. It's just there. Remember, John the author loves Hena clauses, that purpose statements. John is a very clear writing writer. I, the more that I read John, the more I'm aware and the more I want to communicate more clearly because I love how clearly John communicates. He records John the witness saying, for this purpose, I came baptizing that he might be revealed to Israel. You see, I think the primary purpose of the baptism of John was the revelation of Jesus. And I think this was John's primary purpose overall. We refer to him as John the Baptist when in this gospel the emphasis is on John the witness. Yes, he baptizes. Yes, he calls the people to repentance. But all that is secondary. This is primary. John is the one God chooses to introduce to us his son, the Savior of the world. Verse 31, I came baptizing that he might be revealed. Look at verse 32. How was he revealed? And John bore witness, there's that word, I saw the Spirit, first use, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. 33, catch this, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Did you see that? John himself did not know him. Now, we know that Jesus and John were some sort of distant relatives, uh, but we don't know if they ever met before the baptism or not. We don't know if they grew up together playing and were buddies or something. I mean, they could have, but we don't, we don't know. But what John is saying here is that he did not know him, Jesus, as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And this is John the witness, or the one specifically sent by God to prepare the way for God. He did not and could not Recognize Jesus. And this is an important thing to note. No one, not even John, the greatest of men, the last great Old Testament prophet, not even John can recognize the Savior without the Spirit. Because this is what I've been driving at. Our first point, the Spirit of life is the one who reveals to John and thus reveals to you the Christ of life. It is the role of the Spirit to reveal the Son. Notice that it is only as John sees the Spirit that he can then recognize and see the Savior. Let's see what John sees. Remember, John the author doesn't record the baptism of Jesus, which would have happened about 40 days, maybe now 41 days or so before our passage. Let's look at Matthew. Go to Matthew chapter 3, uh, page 808. 
Let's look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. This is such a wonderful scene. Matthew chapter 3, I'll read verses 13 through 17, 808. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I would love to just camp there in that passage. I love what John says there to Jesus. I love what Jesus says to John. I love what the father uh, says about the son. But look at the spirit. Let's focus on the spirit. We see the spirit descending on Jesus. And so the first question you probably have is, well, why a dove? The spirit's not a dove, right? Here's a symbol. So why a dove? That's, that's a really good question, actually. It's, it's kind of hard to say definitively. There are a number of different possibilities and different people take different approaches. Some, based on the background that we've already seen of Genesis chapter 1, would argue um, that um, they would connect the dove of the baptism of Jesus back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, where there we see the Spirit of God hovering, kind of bird-like, I guess, hovering over the face of of the waters. So we see the first creation, there's the spirit. Now we're seeing the beginning of new creation, so here's the spirit. Maybe. Uh, some connect the spirit as a dove to Genesis chapter 8 and the end of the flood. In verse chapter 1, or, or in chapter 8, verse 1, uh, God makes what most translations say a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Look at that word, wind, in the Hebrew is the same word that is translated spirit in Genesis 1, verse 2. So many would argue that here's the spirit actually again working, uh, bringing an end uh, to the flood. And then in verse 11, Noah, we know that it's at the end, he's trying to figure out, is there land, is it safe? So he sends out the dove from the ark, um, and then it returns with an olive leaf in its beak. This is Augustine's approach. He writes, as a dove did at that time bring tidings of the abating of water, so doth it now of the abating of the wrath of God upon the preaching of the gospel. So maybe as Noah's dove signals the arrival of a new world, uh, initially cleansed from sin, so does the dove of the Holy Spirit signal the arrival of a new creation cleansed of sin. I like that. I think that's interesting. In Leviticus 5, uh, verse 7, if one cannot afford a lamb to offer up as a sacrifice for sin, well, he can instead offer up a dove for a sin offering. So maybe there's a connection between uh, dove in verse 32 and the lamb in verse 29. Maybe dove is just simply conveying humility, uh, purity, gentleness. It's just a rich symbol. It's hard to nail down. I can't tell you definitively uh, what it means. Um, but, but what is clear is that it is seeing this dove, it is seeing this symbol of the Spirit that would bear witness to John the witness that this was the Messiah. Because that's the role of the Spirit. It is the Spirit's role to reveal the Son. And I want to emphasize this, as I have before, because things get so crazy and confused in so many circles when it comes to the role of the Spirit. But good news, the Bible tells us what the role of the Spirit is. 
so we don't have to guess about his role. And when you hear all kinds of claims about what the Spirit is like and about what the Spirit does, all you have to do is check those claims through the lens of Scripture. Here we have John the witness baptizing specifically so that the Christ might be revealed and that Christ is first revealed to John by the Spirit because this is what the Spirit does. Real quick, let's look at it. Jump to chapter 14. 14 verse 26. There's nowhere more important than John 14, 15, and 16 for our understanding of the Spirit. These are Jesus' final words to the disciples and many of those words are about the Spirit. Look at chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. There's so much there. Now don't worry, we'll do a whole sermon on this in about a year. But first, we see that the Spirit is very much a person, not a force. He is the Helper. He, personal pronoun. He is a person. He is God the Spirit, like God the Son, sent by God the Father. And He will teach and bring to remembrance. So there's two important functions of the Spirit. It's a teaching and a bringing to remembrance. And notice that important qualifier that Jesus gives. He will specifically teach all that Jesus has said to them. That's important. Look over at chapter 15. Verse 26, again, just one chapter ahead, 1526. Here's more. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That's the role of the Spirit, to reveal, to bear witness about Jesus. So look at chapter 16 now. Look at chapter 16, verse 13. When the spirit of truth, again, spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Read that in light of verse 26, all that I have said to you. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And look at verse 14. If you've got one verse, get this one. Here is the spirit summarized. This is the spirit. John 16, 14. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me. According to the word of God and the son of God, the spirit is all about the son. The spirit exists to shine the spotlight on the son. He is the spirit of truth. So he works through the word and he, he, I think he declines to disclose himself in any other way but that word. And so, so frequently, we often draw a divide between the word and the spirit. You are either a word person or you are a spirit person, but it's an unbiblical divide. You cannot have the one without the other. Uh, the one does not work without the other. It is the spirit of truth that works through the word of truth, which reveals to us the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. So the spirit of Christ, uh, the spirit of life reveals to you the Christ of life. So we have behold the Lamb of God, look and live, look at the Savior. That's where you'll find life. And you can only look at the Savior through the Spirit. You cannot look at the Savior apart from the Spirit. The goal is the Savior. Calvin writes this in his uh, commentary on the Colossians, on the Colossians, on Colossians. Um, I found this helpful. He says, for how comes it that we are carried about with so many strange doctrines? Right? So why are Christians so often caught up in all these strange doctrines? Hey, this is 500 years ago. But because the excellence of Christ is not perceived by us. 
for Christ alone makes all other things suddenly vanish. Hence, there is nothing that Satan so much endeavors to accomplish as to bring on mists with the view of obscuring Christ. Because Satan knows that by this means, the way is opened up for every kind of falsehood. This, therefore, is the only means of retaining as well as restoring pure doctrine to place Christ before the view, such as he is with all his blessing, that his excellence may be truly perceived. Christ, the sinner. And so Satan wants to do anything he can to obscure and take the vision and the view away from Christ. And tragically, Satan has even managed to do this, to bring mists with the view of obscuring Christ by actually getting many to focus first, not on Christ, but on the Spirit. To miss the centrality of the Son by directing people's attention away from the Son to the self, ultimately, but doing so in the name of the Spirit. This is why, in some camps, the Spirit is just almost exclusively associated with experience, exclusively associated with the ecstatic, the spontaneous, the mystical, the mysterious, laughing fits, fainting, babbling nonsense words, all in the name of the Spirit. Have you seen, it's been interesting, you probably don't read these things, I don't expect you to, but have you seen there's a bit of a reckoning going on right now in parts of kind of the more charismatic and, and Pentecostal world, because all these big names... Paula Whites and Kenneth Copelands and Pat Robertsons and so many others claiming to be prophets, claiming to receive words from the Lord and speak for the the Lord, all claiming that God told them Trump would win the election. Now, some of you are probably there. He did win the election. I don't care. Um, Not what we're talking about. Um, Get over it. Um, Maybe many of these people even sticking to their guns long after it was very clear that he did not win the election. So, prophet of God says, God told me Trump's going to win. Trump loses. Whoops. What do we do when a prophet prophesies something that doesn't come true? Again, Scripture, it tells us. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. You see, God's word never fails. God never fails to speak truth. So if a prophet predicts something that does not come, prophet, if a prophet predicts something that does not come to pass, uh, then, well, again, we no longer abide by the specific penalties of the old covenant law. We know that. But the principle behind them is the same. That person then, according to God's word, is a false prophet. Cast them out. Do not listen to them. If you say, thus says the Lord, and then it doesn't happen, that's a false prophet. Again, this is the craziness that results when we believe that the Spirit speaks other words outside this word. No, don't. Listen to anyone who claims words and revelations from God apart from the word. Because, guys, listen, one of the main things we want to convince you and that I want to communicate is that this word is, is so wonderful that anyone who minimizes the word, I think, must not really understand it. Read Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. Your law is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Give me life according to your word. And on and on and on it goes. You cannot say anything negative about the word or needing something apart from the word if you actually really read 
uh, this word. And you see the love the psalmist have for uh, the word. Oh, how I love your law. So no, no, stick to the word. Stick to the specific role of the spirit revealed in the word, which is to, through that word, reveal Christ, to magnify Christ, to glorify Christ. There are all kinds of, of supposed spiritualities out there. And it gets confusing. Spiritual experience is ambiguous. All kinds of people and all kinds of religions have all kinds of religious experiences. How do we know when it's true, capital S, spiritual experience? How do we know when it's biblical? And John tells us when it exalts Jesus and when it makes Jesus known. For that is the primary role of the Spirit. And thus, anything spiritual in the true sense of the word will also then exalt and make Jesus known. And so the test is, is simple. Just ask, does this thing, does this practice, this church, this person, does this emphasize Jesus? Does it exalt Jesus? Does it make Jesus known? Is it magnifying the glory of Christ and drawing my affections and my heart to Jesus? Because that's what the spirit exists to do. If Christ is being magnified, the Spirit is there. If Christ is not, the Spirit is not. Because it is the Spirit of life who reveals the Christ of life. Point number two. Look at it. It'll be quicker. The Christ of life baptizes with the Spirit of life. Back to John chapter 1. Look at verse 33. Look at verse 33. We've seen that John has seen the Spirit. The Spirit is the confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. Because John, as an actual prophet, is actually spoken to by God, and he's told to look for the one on whom the Spirit will descend and remain, which was specifically foretold in the Old Testament. Again, even John here is not getting specifically new revelation, because this is all over the Old Testament. Last week, we looked at Isaiah 53. We saw the description of the suffering servant who, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, was pierced for our transgressions, was crushed for our iniquities, and with his wounds we are healed. But throughout the book of Isaiah, there's all these other spots. There's so much more about this one that is to come throughout the book. We rightly focus on Isaiah 53. We should. But let's not miss all the other wonderful things, revelations of who this person is going to be. There's a couple of them. For example, I'm just going to run through them. You don't need to look at them. Isaiah 11, uh, verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Right. So there's a, a Messiah, a king that is to come. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Isaiah 42, verse 1 says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 61, verse 1. Now Jesus himself quotes this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me as Messiah. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And so we see here very clearly that the Messiah is going to be the one empowered by the Spirit of God. And as such, end of back to John 1.33, John is told of the one to whom he will see the Spirit descend. So you're looking on the one that's going to fulfill all these prophecies, the descent of the Spirit. And he's specifically told, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So he is going to have the Spirit and thus he is going to be the one who baptizes with the Spirit. I think that's pretty interesting because the Messiah is first revealed to John the witness as the one who baptizes 
with the Holy Spirit. It's like the first revelation to John of, of Jesus. Hey, this is going to be the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We finally now have the thought begun in verse 26 uh, completed. Remember back in verse 26, John had started talking, I baptize with water. Is this coming contrast implied? Well, here it is. Finally, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In Mark chapter 1, verse 8, we have the two directly connected when John there says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You know, what does that mean? What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It depends on your background and what theological circle you're coming from. You'll answer that question in many different ways. But I think it's actually not that complicated, or at least it, it shouldn't be. First off, this is further confirmation of the identity of Jesus as God himself. In the Old Testament, it's only God who can give and bestow the Holy Spirit. Now here we have Jesus, the word of God who was in the beginning. John's been preparing the way for the Lord, Yahweh in the Old Testament. Here we see that the one John is preparing the way for is Jesus, who is the Lord. And here we see that Jesus, as the Lord, is the one who gives and dispenses the Spirit. Only God can do that. Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Spirit. So again, here's the God-man. Here's Jesus. And so keep in mind, as we try to figure out what this means, keep in mind the basic idea we established earlier, conveyed by the most basic of symbols of, of water baptism. Water washes. Water cleanses. Right? Go get in the shower. It will make you clean. So John is comparing and contrasting his baptism of, with water to Jesus' baptism with the Spirit. So therefore, I think we can make the assumption that in some way, then, it seems that the Spirit washes. In some way, the Spirit cleanses. And when we go back to the Old Testament again, we see these various promises and predictions of the coming Spirit and what he will do that will confirm this. Again, for example, back in Isaiah verse 43, no, Isaiah 44, verses 3 and 4, God says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So there's going to be some sort of outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, what will happen when that spirit is poured out? We could look at different places, but the easiest and best place we could look is Ezekiel chapter 36. Look there. This, I think this, this couldn't be more clear. Page 724. Nobody started turning out. Yeah, Ezekiel. Where's Ezekiel? Page 724. Ezekiel chapter 36. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 27. This is the big one. This is the new covenant. What is this new covenant? What is God going to do in this new covenant? Page 724, Ezekiel 36, look at verse 25. What's God going to do about our sin? Here's the problem. He's holy. His people are not. What's to be done? God promises, Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. If we had more time, we could keep reading and just go on into Ezekiel 37. Look over there. This is wonderful. 
graphic and glorious vision of the valley of the dry bones. Ezekiel 37, verse 3, God asks, can these bones, bones live? Verse 4, God says to Ezekiel, prophesy, speak over these bones and say to them, old dry bones. What do you say to them? How are these bones going to live? Old dry bones. Hear the word of the Lord. It's the word that brings life. Look at verse 5. Then shall they live when the spirit of breath comes into them. Verse 14, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. You see the connection, word, spirit, word, spirit, coming together, life. It's because it is the spirit who gives life. Spirit within you equals life. This is a new covenant. God promises, I will cleanse. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. And he said, I love this. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Church, that is my only hope. That is your only hope. God says, I will cause you. The law is good. Obedience to the law is good. We do not earn God's favor by keeping the law. Christ comes and keeps it for us. And then he sets us free and he gives us the heart and the desire and the ability now to obey God's law because we love God's law because it reveals to him who he is. And we want to please him and we want to honor him. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. That makes me think of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where Peter says he has caused us to be born again. This is, this is church, as a sinner, this is our only hope. This is my only hope that God causes within me what is required. And so the baptism of the Spirit, according to those texts, or baptism with the Spirit, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's, just, it's simply the new birth. That's it. That's what it is. It's new life. It's coming up in chapter 3. Jesus says, you must be born again. Nicodemus is confused. Jesus says, hey, you should know this, right? Because it's in the Old Testament. And so Jesus clarifies, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. By the way, that's where life is. Verse 8, you must be born of the Spirit. Obviously, we understand that birth is about life. So the Spirit is the one who reveals the Christ, and the Christ is the one who gives the Spirit, the Spirit who washes, cleanses, makes new, causes us to be born again and live. We were dead. God makes us alive together in Christ, and he does that through the work of the Holy Spirit. Just as water washes away dirt, so the Spirit washes away sin. Remember that concept introduced for us in verse 29. You have two problems because of your sin. There's two problems. You are both guilty and you are filthy. You are guilty and you are filthy. You need to be forgiven and you need to be cleansed. It's the Son as the Lamb who does the work. And this is why I love Jesus' words to John from Matthew 3 that we read earlier. It is fulfilling to fulfill all righteousness. Why is Jesus, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, submitting to a baptism for the repentance of sins? Why? To identify with us. And that's, by the way, one of the main symbolic meanings of the word baptizo, right? Our word baptism is we just took the Greek and we transliterated it, right? It means simply to, to immerse. It means to go under the water. It doesn't mean to pour. It's that, it's that simple. But there's symbolic metaphorical meanings that it's used throughout Greek literature that it's used like for the dyeing of a cloth. Uh, the cloth was so immersed in the dye, so surrounded by it, so overwhelmed by it, so transformed by it that the cloth is now identified with the dye. When you think baptism, think identification. When Jesus 
in his baptism, what we see him then doing is he's identifying with us. He's identifying with sinners. Remember, animals can't pay for our sin because we are people. So here is the Son of God taking on flesh, identifying with us, standing in our place, taking the place of sinners, representing sinners. He didn't need to repent. He had no sin. But we have a lot of sin. We do need to repent. And so in submitting himself to John's baptism, Jesus is signaling to us what he was going to do. He is going to live in our place and he is going to die in our place. And in so doing, he is going to fulfill all righteousness. You cannot be in relationship with the God of perfect righteousness without yourself having perfect righteousness. You do not have it. You can only find it in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So as it's so commonly put, Jesus came to live the life we were supposed to live and die the death we, were, we deserve to die. Jesus in my place. That's the gospel. Jesus does the work for us. But it is the Spirit who then takes that work that Jesus has done and applies it to us. Both the forgiveness and the cleansing secured by Christ. A couple of verses, New Testament. We looked at a bunch of Old Testament. New Testament, I'll run through them. Ephesians 5, 26, Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for the church. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Such a beautiful picture. He has cleansed us by the washing of water. How? With the word. 1 Corinthians 6, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. You know the list. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, and on and on and on. They will not inherit the kingdom. Verse 11. And such were some of you. Again, were. This is not your identity anymore. We don't, I'm not a former um, I, sexually immoral Christian. Right? I would never identify myself with my sin. That doesn't make any sense. No, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Word in the first one, Spirit in the second one. Titus 3, verse 5. We didn't save ourselves. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. You didn't do anything. You're not righteous. You have no righteous works. He saved us according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's regeneration. It's, it's new life. Renewal. More and more conformed and transformed into the image of Jesus. The image of God himself. And church, listen, this is what holiness is. This is what God is doing for us. Uh, Pastor Mike and I were at a meeting on Thursday. I forgot to ask him about this, what he thought. I didn't talk to him about it, so maybe he can correct me if I'm wrong. But we heard a sermon from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-11. through 11, And it was a good sermon. It was, strong, uh, it was a strong, needed call for holiness. And we desperately need that in our churches these days. Um, we just don't care about holiness anymore. So we need strong calls uh, that we are called to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So we need that. It was good. But I think it very subtly missed something important. It stressed the very important things that we need to do. Make every effort, Peter says. Amen and amen. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Dallas Willard, effort is good. It is good to call God's people to strive for holiness. But I think the preacher slightly missed something that we must 
stress. We then talked a lot about just the lamenting the cultural collapse and the sin and the porn and the phones and the sexual immorality kind of in the world and in our churches. And again, all this stuff is terrible and awful and we need to hate it and we need to preach against it. But I think he slightly missed emphasizing uh, the nature of what holiness really is. He jumped from the beginning kind of to the end. But 2 Peter 1.4, it's a pretty amazing verse. It says, God has granted us his precious and very great promises. First of all, you stop there. Everything that comes after us is couched in that context. God has given, granted, graced us with precious and very great promises. Here's Peter with a clause. So that, purpose statement, so that through them you may, get this, become partakers of the divine nature. What? What, me? This is what God is doing. This is holiness. God in some mysterious way, is making us like him. He is making us more like the most perfect, blessed, beautiful, and happy person that there is. So we have to understand what holiness is. Holiness is happiness. Holiness is being like God, and God is perfect, and God is content, and God never complains, and God is never sad, and God is never... God is He's everything, all perfection, summarized. And Peter says, hey, by the way, he's making you a partaker of that. That's what God is doing. That's what holiness is. Um, and listen, as a sinner, as an anxious person, as a stressed person, as a fearful person, as a doubtful person, hey, that sounds wonderful, by the way, because God doesn't have any of those things. God's not sitting there wondering, oh, what's that person thinking of this sermon? Um, and, oh, no, is that person kind of upset about this thing? No, God is perfect contentment. And Peter tells us God's making us like him. This is what God is up to through the work of Jesus Christ and the application of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that takes what is earned by Christ and applies it to us. The Spirit is the means through which the benefits that Christ has secured for us become ours. And so we've got to preach the beauty of holiness and the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ. We have to call ourselves and everyone else to behold the glory of the Lamb of God. And it's the Spirit that helps us to do that. And so earlier I said that this is the Spirit's primary role. It is to reveal Christ, yes and yes. And it's to reveal Christ, though, and as he does so, then to unite us to Christ and make us one with Christ and in Christ. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. It's revelation and it's relationship. It's revelation and then the, the union with Christ all facilitated through the word of Christ. He is called the Holy Spirit. Yeah, now obviously, again, think about it. The Father is obviously holy. The Son is obviously equally holy. But we, we specify this with the Spirit because it is the Spirit's role to make us holy. We've already seen what that holiness is. It's to make us happy and content and satisfied and like God. And he does this by opening our eyes to the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. It is only by the Spirit that we can see and be born again. And remember always, let's go and get this right, we're going to emphasize this, it's regeneration that precedes faith. And it's what God does first that then causes our response. It is not our faith, as it's often taught, that then causes the new birth. Hey, believe these things and then you'll be born again. No, it's the new birth, the regeneration, the gracious working of the Holy Spirit brings our dead hearts back to life by which we then respond in repentance and 
Because the new birth is entirely a work of the Holy Spirit as God graciously brings us from death to life, removes old hearts, gives new hearts, and puts his spirit within us. So yes, believe. But when you do, when you see, know that it is only by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that you have done so. It is all him from beginning to end. He is the one who saves his people through the sending of his son and the sending of the spirit. The spirit of life who takes what is Christ's and then makes it ours. The spirit who is all about the son. How do you recognize the spirit? Are you being directed to the son? How do you recognize a work of the spirit? Is the son being glorified and magnified? How do you know if you have the Spirit? Do you love the Son? Not, not, not like, do you believe the right things about Jesus? Do you come to church sometimes? Not like, do you love? Are you seeing the beauty and the glory of this Son who saves us from our sins? Right? Is there a growing desire and affection for the Lord uh, Jesus Christ? That's the evidence of the Spirit working within us as we see Jesus and we oh, that's what life is about. That's where life is found. That's what I want. That's where the Spirit is. Spurgeon says that it is the Spirit's work to turn our look away from self to the Savior. In corollary, then, it is Satan's work, he says, to do the opposite, to turn our look away from the Savior to self. Surely, this should be a significant realization in the culture of self in which we find ourselves. The culture of self-esteem. Look to yourself. Believe in yourself. Think highly of yourself. Treat yourself. Be who you are. Follow your heart. You, 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 you. Self, 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 self. It's it's specifically satanic. This self-obsession. It is the spirit. Any sort of Christ obsession. Don't look at the spirit. Look through, with, by means of the spirit, at the Son, the Savior. The all-glorious one. Ask the Spirit to give you the eyes to see. I pray every single morning, open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Psalm 119, verse 18. Spirit, give me new eyes, ears, taste for the Savior. Uh, Spirit, delight my heart in Jesus Christ. Spirit, give me your heart for your people. Give me your heart, a desire to to witness. Uh, Make me like you as the witness of the desiring, actually, to speak and witness to the beauty of Jesus Christ. Spirit, help me. That's your application. Speak to the Spirit. Pray to the Spirit. Ask for the assistance of the Spirit to direct you to the Savior. Because that is where you will find life. Because it is the Spirit who gives life with his cleansing, sin-removing power, with the Lamb of God and uh, he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What John the author is doing is he's putting all of the emphasis on the redemptive, salvific significance of Jesus Christ. John the witness is saying, not not me, not me, not me, but him, but him, but him. Look to him, the savior of the world, as the substitute for sin and the giver of the spirit, the giver of life. Look to him. It is the spirit of life that reveals to you the life of Christ. It is the Christ of life that then baptizes you with the spirit of life. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life that you graciously give to us, your people, in Christ. 
We thank you for the indescribable gift of the Holy Spirit, Father, who is with us always, Father, who mediates your presence to us, who is within us, Father, who is uh, sanctifying us, who is giving us uh, spiritual sight and uh, taste, uh, who is um, showing us that there is nothing, no life, no hope to be found in the world, and in directing us to Jesus Christ, where all hope and life is found. Father, help us to delight in the Spirit um, by delighting in the Son. Help us to be thankful for the Spirit uh, by growing in our love and affection for the Son that the Spirit points us to. Father, make us people both of the Spirit and of the Word. I pray that we would believe um, in the eternal power of your Word uh, to bring uh, life. Uh, Father, I echo Pastor Mike's prayer. Forgive us for implicitly believing that there are people that you cannot save. Uh, Forgive us uh, for that. And help us to believe uh, that you are uh, more than capable and more uh, powerful than any of us can imagine. And Father, you can do all things uh, by your Spirit uh, through your Word. And so we ask first for that work to happen in our own hearts. We ask that you would make us like Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would first um, give us a sense of the goodness and the beauty of holiness. Father, give within us a desire uh, to obey you and an understanding of the goodness of obeying you and a desire that um, we want to be more like you because you are uh, the perfect one. So, Father, give us a desire for holiness. Father, help Mike and I to lead and to teach and to drive us in that direction uh, well and and rightly uh, through the preaching of your word and and through the goodness of the gospel. Father, make us a holy people. Father, make us a loving people. Make us a witnessing people. I'm so desirous, so confident and convinced that there is life only found in Jesus that we cannot help but tell uh, the lost and the dying of where we have found that life. Father, we desperately need your help. Father, in this text, we have seen that you have offered us and given us all the help that we could possibly imagine in your spirit. Um, So Father, make us a people of the spirit as we grow in our love and affection uh, for the Son, as we grow in our effectiveness as your saints and as your witnesses. Father, please help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.